there. Welcome back to Artful Scientista. Who knew that an accident in her science lab would lead today's guest, Pat Hunt, a geneticist out of Washington State University in Pullman, Washington, to a whole other field of research. From her asking, why is it harder for older women to have babies, to serendipitously discovering a chemical that is so well known now to have a negative impact on our bodies if we ingest it, Pat explains a bit about BPA. Yep, I I bet you've heard of it, BPA. BPA is bisphenol A, and it's a chemical used in plastics for food containers and other household items. Because BPA mimics the hormone estrogen, it can influence bodily processes, including fertility. And guess what? BPA is also an endocrine disruptor, which means it messes up the body's hormones. Pat, who earned her PhD at the University of Hawaii, gives us a glimpse into how important her research is and how making science understandable to people is key. My guest today is Patricia Hunt, who is the Meyer Distinguished Professor in the School of Molecular Sciences at Washington State University, which is in Pullman, Washington. And thank you for being here, Pat. Welcome. My pleasure. Thanks, Betsy. It seems like there was two main things that came up about what you have done. So I guess maybe just start with a little bit about what you do, what your field of science is. Well, some people are famous. I'm infamous for my mistakes. So, you know, I started off, I was trained in genetics. And the the piece that really intrigued me is why women have such a hard time having babies as we get older. And, you know, the mid thirties is not very old. And yet we start to have real problems. So it's one of the first age effects we really have. And I started in a lab that studied this and I just never walked away from that problem. So I was really interested in that and, you know, trying to branch out, look at new approaches to it and trying to use some mouse models to say, can we, can we ask questions about how those eggs grow and what might impact them with age? And we were, you know, we were getting really good data. I was getting really excited. You know, I had a hypothesis. Our data were, was, was bearing it out. This is so exciting because, you know, it almost never happens. You have a nice hypothesis and then you end up saying, oh, well, let's start all over again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and all of a sudden, our the data for our controls started to go completely crazy. And it was literally one week things were normal and the next week they were not. Oh, And this led me down what's turned into a giant rabbit hole because what happened is my animals were being inadvertently exposed to BPA or bisphenol A, which today is a household word at that time, which was almost 20 years ago. Not quite so much. There really wasn't much known about it. And here we had, you know, an amazing effect where it was causing eggs from completely normal mice to be chromosomally abnormal. And this is, although severely common occurrence in humans, it's not common at all in the mouse. And that started me down this different road. So you're saying bisphenol? Bisphenol, yeah. Bisphenol, okay. That was my first major accident, my serendipitous research. And it just happened to be several times after that. Uh, So. And I had another pronunciation question for you. Is it Anna, Anna Ploidy? Aneuploidy. Yeah. Okay. It's chromosomally abnormal eggs, and everyone knows Down syndrome, and they know that by the time a woman's in her 30s, she should be thinking about prenatal testing for risk of a Down syndrome child. But it's really much more common than that. It's just that 
Down syndrome is very unusual because they survive to term and we, we see them in the, in the population. They, they live. Right. Um, but most of the rest of them die and end up in miscarriages, early pregnancy loss. And almost no one appreciates miscarriage until it happens to them. And then they find out Aunt Betty had two miscarriages. Mom had three. You know, who knew? Yeah. Um, so that's what's always driven my research. And then the idea that chemicals that we're all exposed to on a daily basis could impact this process. That just really caught my attention and I've never been able to let go. Yeah, I, I bet because accident or no accident, it, that's powerful. You happened on this situation by accident and the BPAs became more known and the ramifications of that. And now it looks like you're finding the fact that we have these alternative plastics, but not necessarily safe for us to be eating or drinking. Sadly, yeah, sadly, we asked for BPA to be taken out of products. And we inadvertently handed manufacturers, you know, the best marketing tool we could hand them, because now they can say, yeah, this is BPA free and consumers will pay more for it. And in fact, what they've done is substitute this one bisphenol. They've substituted many others for it. So now we have a whole family of this type of chemical. In the scientific world, you probably have to use plastics for all different kinds of things in a lab. And what about that? Is that information affecting anybody? Yeah, you know, I'm not the, I'm not the first person to stumble on this. Actually, the first people was a yeast lab, and they were using plastic flasks, and they started to get bizarre data. And it turned out it was this chemical leaching out of those plastic flasks. And several other people who study these chemicals were like me drawn into this field by an accident in their research that they said, Ooh, something's not right here. Uh-huh. And yeah, we use a lot of plastic in the lab. Some of them are more um, stable than the, the simple polycarbonate plastic, which is not quite as robust, uh, but we can't get rid of plastic in our lives mm-hmm. completely. And one of the problems for us is our mouse cages have been plastic for all these years. We switched to a to a better type of plastic, but you know, it's only a matter of time and uses and, and number of cycles through the washing process that they start to slowly degrade. And I think one of the things that I try to always get across to people is, you know, we view these as these are permanent products and they're they're really not. And they have a short lifespan and when they start to degrade, they leach these chemicals. Yeah. It's so enormous. It's kind of mind boggling. And probably for you, even more so knowing more than the general population. Yeah, that's why it's been hard to walk away. It's a pretty big problem. It's driven by an industry that makes a lot of money off of it. And, you know, everything I've learned convinces me that we need some good scientific minds focused on this. Yeah, yeah. So one of my questions was, what is your spark of inspiration? And it kind of sounds like that's what it is, you know, these things come up and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you just keep driving ahead on what this problem is. Well, you know, human fertility, it's not a, it's not a comfortable subject for a lot of people because we have a lot of couples who would love to have families and they're having a hard time starting them. So my research from the very beginning was why does it get harder with age? Now it's why does it get harder in general? And You know, I think these chemicals play a role for both males and females, men and women, but a lot of other species. And, you know, it's a pretty global problem here. So that does drive me and it does keep me in the game. Yeah, it's super interesting to me. 
I think thinking about my process in art and when inspiration is happening, I wonder if this is similar or not. When I'm in that flow state where I'm really present, that's when the inspiration just keeps being present. And I'm just curious about how that works for you day in and day out. And with that too, like if you get stuck, how do you deal with that? I don't know about you, but it almost feels like it's divine interference sometimes because you're working on a problem and you can't work your way. And, you know, then suddenly you just see things differently. And it especially happens to me when I write, I'll be working on trying to craft an argument and I'm just, I've been beating my head against a wall. And then all of a sudden you just you're in the groove. It just flows. It just works. The time disappears. You don't even know where it, where it went. Yeah. Yeah. And how you recharge. Well, I don't know about you, but I, I, I have to get away. I like solitude. So I usually love to go walk in the woods or take a walk somewhere and just air my brain out and give my head a chance to, to process. And I always tell my students, you know, whether you're working or not, you know, if you're alone and somebody's not bugging you and talking in your ear, you know, your brain is working on the problem and you just need to give it the space and the time to allow that to happen. Yeah, that sounds really similar. And it's fascinating to me because they're different fields, but I always have seen the correlation. Well, I think a number of us are failed artists, <laughs> people who would, would love to do art. And we just don't, never felt like we had the talent to do it. Um, but I have a lot of, of my colleagues who really, really love art too, and go out of our way, you know, to go and experience new artists and new things. And I think for those of us who have really visual work, you know, I do a lot of my work down the microscope. It is art. I mean, there's some cells where I just have to call somebody and say, look at this. It's so beautiful. I agree. I got on this track of looking at cells and one-celled organisms that is really beautiful. It is just fascinating to me how beautiful it is. And people need to know. Really, that's my take is people need to know how beautiful it is. Well, I also think, you know, scientists need to learn how to let people know about their science. I mean, this is one thing we are not trained in and I'm doing everything I can to make sure the next generation is better able to talk to people than my generation is because you pay our bills for the most part. You know, we work with federal tax dollars and Yet so many scientists can't really explain their work to the general public. That's a shame because we can't make the assumption people can't understand. Anyone can understand if we can explain it in a way that's accessible to them. And when you do that, is that like part of conversation when you're working with your students? Or do you have a a specific kind of spiel that you say to people about that? I beat them over the head. (laughs) Over the years, because of the things that I've done and coming up against industry and trying to be pulled in front of state legislatures to talk about, you know, should we be passing this bill or not passing this bill? I realized that, you know, scientists do a very poor job of breaking down their work to make it comprehensible. And so it's entered my teaching. I've changed an undergraduate class so that I can try to make them think about being good communicators when they go out into the world. So we teach seniors Mm. I use it on my graduate students and tell them it doesn't matter how good your science is. If you can't speak and write in a way that, that will reach a broader audience than your own immediate peers, it doesn't matter what you're doing. It's not going to get the traction it needs. You know, the pandemic's opened a lot of eyes for people and it's made 
scientists, I think, understand the power of scientists who really can communicate. And the problems with scientists who can't communicate the importance of things. And, you know, we've had an anti-vaxxer movement in this country for a long time. Right. And, you know, that really is a, an understanding problem, a grasping the science problem. In thinking of you as a woman scientist, as you were moving along in time, did you see very many other women scientists? You know, I sought them out. I'm an introvert and I was never sure that I had the, the ability to do this. And I wanted women role models. So I actually was trained by three tremendous women scientists. Mm. And each one of them taught me many things, including what I did not want to be, some of their attributes. Ah. Um, because for women of that generation, you know, they had to be really tough. You know, it was a, it was a tough world and women in science were not very common. So they were really special scientists. Now our graduate classes are 50-50 or maybe even more heavily weighted for women. Doesn't mean that we're training all these women scientists because a lot of them drop out at different points along the way because it's really hard to, to run your life, your private life, and do a good job of science. Somewhere in my reading, you were making a little joke about you want the younger women scientists to have the babies early as in terms of your research. Yeah. Having to do with age and. Yeah. Have your babies early and often. Yeah. We're kind of catching up. One of the things, again, that the pandemic has done is, is the National Institutes of Health, which fund a lot of biomedical research, have decided that we should be supporting our young couples with children more and providing some daycare options for them and ways for them to go to meetings and things like that, that young families really struggle with. Right. So maybe there's hope, you know, we're going right. to make the next generation, make their lives a little better. Right. And for the men and the women, just to give them the opportunity to be able to manage their life more wholly in a way. Good. If you were to talk to girls that want to become scientists, what would you say to them? I think that it has to be a passion. You know, you have to love what you do. And when you're training, it's hard to see how you could love it because you feel like it's just you're working so hard, you're not sure you're getting anywhere. But I, I tell my students, you know, I I look up and go, oh my gosh, it's Thursday already because the week just flies by. There's so many things I want to do and so many things I am doing that that I just feel engaged all the time. A lot of them look at me and think, I don't want your life because you you don't have a full enough life for me. I want all these other things on the side. Right. I tell them, you know, we have such an amazing life because we travel all over the world and our guides are other scientists who take us into their homes. So we see the world in quite a different way from a lot of other people. And I found that part just incredibly rewarding. I have colleagues all over the world and have had some amazing experiences like that. But it's not the traditional, you know, life. We're not after the boat and the cabin and the, you know, all of those things. Right, right. So it's passion. That sounds like the perfect thing to be saying, because if you're going to do it the rest of your life, it's something you want to be interested in. Yeah. Kind of like an artist, you know, you don't, we never asked how much they were going to pay us. when We got our, our jobs. We were just so delighted. That's for sure. If you could do any other job, what would you do? It's funny that you asked that question because my husband and I are approaching the ends of our careers and, and we, we do a lot of talking about, you know, what would you do differently? And, And I just asked him that, what would you do differently? 
and we talked about careers he'd be good at. And he, and he said, what about you? And I said, well, I don't know. What do you think I would be good at? And he said, art. <laughs> I was really flattered <laughs> because I love art. And I've always felt like, you know, gosh, I just can't pull it off. I can visualize it. I can't pull it off. So I think I would have loved to have your line of work. We moved from Cleveland, Ohio about 17 years ago. And my plan there, there was a great glass artist. And I said to him, you know, Bruce, I'm, I'm going to apprentice myself to you when I retire. So that's what I really wanted to do. I wanted to be blowing glass. Are you interested in having people find you? Would you like me to, to list where they could find you for more information? You know, I get all these emails from concerned people who feel like they've been exposed and they want to know if this is the cause of their infertility or the reason their baby died or, the, you know, the reason that their sperm counts low and, and, it always places me in this difficult position because I'd like to be able to help them, but mostly I want to tell them, look, who knows? And there isn't anyone on the face of the earth who can tell you for certain that this is what happened. Um, This is why I keep researching. This is why I keep doing this, but no one actually knows for sure. So I feel like people are, are really vulnerable and mothers especially have so many things they're worried about. You know, they're, I've been doing a class with, with our graduate students and we're taking them through all the effects of lifestyle and on fetal development, the effects of mother's health and mother's weight and, and father's health and father's weight and all these things. And it's, it's kind of overwhelming them because they go, oh, my gosh, there's so many things going on that can affect the development of this baby. And then their ability to grow up as a normal adult and not have cancers and not have, you know, other serious behavioral problems, et cetera. And it's a complicated world. And it's always been a complicated world. You know, we've always had problems that the problems just change. You know, we have better nutrition, we have better access to healthcare. And, and so you see real changes in populations, people grow taller, and their right. populations have changed enormously. And yet, at the same time, we have a whole new spectrum of problems that creep in that we need to worry about. So I don't know the answer to your question about, do I want to be accessible? I always write back and I try to provide them some information or point them in the right direction. But, you know, it's probably the biggest problem is, you know, we recognize the potential problems, but because they start so early, they can start when a woman's making eggs. They can start when a baby's being, you know, gestated. Right. And then we see the problems in the adult. How can we link those back in humans? We can't do those things. So people who say, you know, we should never do any animal research. I'm sorry. You know, we we have to do these kinds of things um, because we have to understand what we're doing to ourselves. If we want to understand, right? Yeah. 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 And people want that, but they don't necessarily want the other part of it. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. a tough one. And I know this is a layperson question, but... Is that why you're in the veterinary medicine um, department because you work with animals and test on animals? No. So I actually did all my previous work in a medical school environment, and that's really where both my husband and I should be in a medical school. And I got breast cancer and went through chemotherapy and had a really, really long, hard experience. And we said, you know, gosh, when we came to Cleveland, it was for work. It was a great department. It was awesome. But I don't want to grow old and die in Cleveland. And suddenly that looked very possible. Mm. And so we decided to move west. I have two brothers out here. And we really love the west and really loved living here. Nice. So, yeah. The vet school was kind of like 
This is where we landed. I forgot to ask you a question about, do you see science as creative? I think that's the most fun part of it. And I think for lots of our incoming students, they don't think of it as creative. But there are two different kinds of scientists for me. There's a scientist who just, they're plodding along and they're looking at their questions. And then the scientists who are trying to fit it all in and, and, and make sense of it in a more global way and push the field forward by putting questions out there for people to attack. And that's always been, my work's not going to change anything, but maybe the ability to ask the right question is going to trigger the right person to get on a question and really open some doors for us. And and that's the part that's really fun. I don't know about you, but we, my husband and I are both in the same field. We are not here because we just went, ah, I think I'm going to do genetics. Because the man who taught genetics for us in our first class as undergraduates was absolutely amazing as a teacher. He was a weird little man, but he was an amazing teacher. And there are like five of us, five or six of us, who took his class and we wound up in this field. Wow. Talk about a legacy, you know. No one knows this. No one would recognize his name, but his legacy is profound. Seriously, a good teacher is so important. We certainly need it. You know, we've been talking about it a lot in my field and the endocrine disruptors just because, you know, people don't understand. They can't wrap their mind around what these chemicals are doing and they can't understand. They all think, you know, if it was dangerous, my government, they'd protect me, right? Right. And, you know, that's so not right. So we need to talk. That's been the best part of it for me is I stumbled out of my field into this other field. And I've met the most wonderful, creative scientists I've ever met in my life in this field. And they're all the same. They sort of stumbled into this field and they haven't been able to walk away. And they're doing amazing things. One of them is a guy up in Canada who puts together these amazing little videos that that are teaching videos. And they're just, the graphics are so good. They're so wonderful. You know, another is a chemist. And this guy is trying to teach his students about the real world. And and I worry that he's scaring them. But he's actually trying to give them the unvarnished truth and, and set them into the world, really seeing things and thinking about how they can make an impact. And he's, at the same time that he's terrifying them with the reality telling them that you have to go out there and you have to change things one person can make a difference and you're going to meet these people who can make a difference so he's sucked in a bunch of people to talk to his class and and trying to send them this message and i think we can do anything for the next generation they've been sitting around going ah we you know our lives have been destroyed by this pandemic how are we ever going to get anywhere and and he's trying to provide them with you know you have to be a force you have to go into the world you have to make change i have to tell you that i have been attracted to art over the years where i've gone up to the artist and i've said what is the inspiration for this because this looks exactly like an egg because i've seen so many really cool pieces of art over the years and i've been struck by how many artists really well you know i don't know but my mom was a biologist. It's like, oh man, you just osmosis. Right, osmosis for sure. So how do you deal with the, it must be the same kind of thing. We, my world is criticism, right? Everything you do, you know, you write a paper, you get reviews and reviewers slam you to the mat for this, that, and the other thing. And you have to respond and come back stronger. And if you allow it to, it makes your work stronger. Mm-hmm. Some of the comments are really hard to take. But it's like constant criticism. You write a grant, you know, the best idea I've ever had, and the reviewers absolutely hate it. You know, it's nonstop. Yeah. 
And I've always thought that art must be the same thing. You, you have to spend a lot of time with yourself. You have to be comfortable with yourself, but you're putting yourself out there to be criticized. And yeah. that's hard for a lot of people to take. Some of us survive because when you kick us, we ultimately get mad and get even. <laughs> it's a funny two-sided thing because you could generalize that artists might be inward also, but if the, you have the drive to do it, you're making the the objects so you can make them for yourself but most people want to put them out there and you do have to to get a little bit of a, a thick skin or just knowing yourself know what you want to do yeah you're going to get the critics too it's all part of it everything is not for everybody so that takes time especially if you're younger that that takes time to kind get of used to out. yeah yeah oh so. i really have always thought that would be a fun way to spend your life. And I've had several friends who just have amazing talent and they've gone off and, and done things like this. So cool. And I thought, well, you know, that would be a great second career because it's hard for me to think about leaving this one Yeah. because there's so many things that need to be done. And it's so interesting. And, and yet, you know, I also realize I'm not going to stay at the cutting edge because I just can't keep up with everything the same way I used to. And it's time to step back. Money's not you know, not all that prevalent. And there's a lot of really great young scientists there. And maybe give yourself the the grace to say that it's not necessarily a career, but something that you're interested in doing and just go for it. Yeah. You know, less pressure. Yeah, exactly. Just going to dabble, have fun. Well, again, thank you so much. Okay, listeners, right here, it got really choppy. So I took some things out and then it kind of ended abruptly. So I'm just adding this in here and thanks for listening. All right. Bye, Pat. Bye. Pat Hunt. What an influence she has made on our daily lives. Key takeaways from Pat. Number one, the fact that chemicals we are exposed to daily can impact fertility. Number two, plastics are not permanent. BPA-free does not mean chemical-free. Products can alternately contain BPS and or BPF. Number three, the microscopic world is beautiful. Number four, if there could be such a thing as a perk from this pandemic we are still in, it's realizing the power of scientists who can communicate effectively. I hope you've enjoyed this and thank you for listening. You can find Artful Scientista on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Subscribe if you wish, or maybe mention it to a friend. If you're interested in seeing my science-related art, head on over to BetsyJudge.com. See you next time.